Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, where we are answering your money questions with Kyle Mast and Amanda Wolf, the She Wolf of Wall Street. But one of the best things you can do is maybe transition at your current job. If you're a valuable employee, a lot of employers would love to have you for a year or two in a part time capacity where they don't have to pay you benefits, but you still get paid really well. And then now you're able to kind of watch your budget for a year or two as you're in part-time, maybe what you're making almost covers it and you can pull some out of your investments or your real estate properties. But this is, it's kind of like a trial run to give you a sense of, of how things look and it's not so scary. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen and joining me today in the host seat for the first time is the She-Wolf of Wall Street, Amanda Wolf, and back for another round is Kyle Mast, CFP. We're here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else, to introduce you to every money story because we truly believe financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big-time investments in assets like real estate, or start your own business, we'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so you can launch yourself towards your dream. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. And I'm super excited for today's episode. Kyle Mast is back. I love Kyle. He is so smart and knowledgeable. If you were lucky enough to have him as your CFP, you won the CFP lottery. He walks on financial water, according to me, and you know him from episode 41, where he gave excellent tips for finding your own CFP. Episode 84, where he came back to talk about traditional retirement and what that looks like. Episode 200, a masterclass in retirement. And last Friday's episode, where we talked about money fears with Jay Scott. So Kyle, welcome back. It's good to be back, Mindy. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited you're here. And Amanda Wolf, also known as the She-Wolf of Wall Street, is back on the show in her first time as host. You know her from episode 329 where she shared her journey on the path to financial independence that included exactly zero advantages. In fact, she had every obstacle you could think of thrown at her, and she decided that she didn't want to live like that as an adult, so she took it upon herself to learn everything she possibly could about finance. Amanda, welcome back to the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. Thanks.
Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I'm super excited for both of you to be here. I really like the two of you together because Kyle is formally trained and Amanda has learned everything on her own. She has done her own research and the the different approach that you both have to your knowledge base I think is fascinating. So I'm excited to see what you guys have to say about the questions that we have. I posted a question in our Facebook group, which you can join if you are not already a member at facebook.com slash groups slash BP money. And I was wanting to know what you would ask a money expert if you had the opportunity. I took some of my favorite questions and we're about to jump right in. Kyle, let's start with you. How can someone strategically pay down student loans while also investing? Scott's philosophy is geared toward keeping the largest monthly expenses extremely low, but Set for Life is silent on student debt, which can be as large as a second mortgage. It would be helpful to learn two to three rules of thumb for approaching student loan pay down and investing. Well, this is a tough question. Um, yeah, so Set for Life, uh, if people listening don't know, that's Scott Trench's book. Um, it's very good, uh, and I actually recommend it to clients oftentimes, especially it's a graduation gift that I give all the time uh, to people. It has a really good plan in there for get, just getting started. But um, from the student life or the student loan standpoint, it's it's not a real easy question. So there's a couple ways you can come at it, and maybe I'll start initially with kind of what I did personally because maybe that – it will kind of show that there's a little bit of nuance to it. So you can kind of come at a student loan debt thing from uh, the standpoint of paying down one that's high interest rate first, like maybe you have more of a private loan that you took out for student loan debt that has a interest rate in the six to 9% range. You know, maybe that makes sense to pay that one down sooner as opposed to one that has a very low subsidized interest rate. However, early on in my marriage with my wife, one of the things that we made a choice to do was to pay off our student loans first. And the reason we did that was that it opened up flexibility for work and life going forward. The debt burden that you carry of anything, whether it's student loans, car loans, anything else like credit card debt, anything, it's it's a burden that you have to then cash flow somehow, whether it's with your investment or with your labor to be able to cover it. And for us, my wife at the time was working a job that she did not like. She was making three times as much as me. I just started the firm. I was making basically nothing. Um, and our goal was to get to a point where our expenses were low enough to where she could quit or take a much more enjoyable job, even if it paid a lot less at that point. And the quickest way to do that was to get rid of our outgoing expenses. And looking back on it, we are we are very happy that we did that. It wasn't the most financially um, optimized thing to do because we could have saved that money up, bought a rental property, um, you know, leveraged that, had it cash flow, built some investments on the side as well, put more into 401ks, Roth IRAs when we're in a lower income bracket. But what it did do is that it opened up that flexibility piece to where a few years later, she was able to leave that job, take a job that she enjoyed a lot more and eventually quit entirely um, when we had our son. So it's not an easy answer. You know, and I feel like maybe I'm sidestepping it here, but that's, that's kind of, you have to look at your situation and see what's going to be right for you. Like, what are your plans? Are you the person asking this question? Are you single? Do you have a family? What, what are your plans for the next five years? You know, if you're able to, um, you know, if those payments are not huge, then you can continue to cash flow them. And if you want to be able to accelerate your wealth some other way, but it sounds like from the question that they might be pretty sizable payments because it, you're saying something about gearing, keeping the largest monthly expenses extremely low. Um, I would lean towards knocking, knocking large payments out really fast. And that's what Scott's gist is in that book, essentially. And maybe he doesn't address the, the student loans directly in this manner. But the reason for that is that flexibility is priceless. You just don't know what life's going to throw your way. And it's another example in a not great example or not as a not a fun example is that if one of something happens to one of you, you become disabled or you get hurt and one of you can't work anymore. If you've eliminated this burden of debt, you have a lot more flexibility. You can make it on one income if you have a, a child that has some special needs that you need to take care of. So, I mean, that would be, Amanda, I'd love to hear what you have to, to say on this. Um, it's, it's definitely a tough question. Yeah. So for me, it's so funny because I did um, prioritize paying down my student loans. And I wish I hadn't. So <laughs> for me, I think that it really depends on how the debt makes you feel. 
um, along with what the interest rate is, right? So, I mean, if you have like some really high interest loans, we want to prioritize paying those down. If it's like, you know, we talk about paying down credit cards, obviously that's like hustling backwards, right? We want to pay those things off. But if you have student loans that are like three, 4%, even up to 5%, I would say, for me, I would much rather like take my money and put it to work in the stock market now because that time is invaluable. You don't get that time back. So for me, I wish that I had actually put even more away toward my 401k and Roth IRA when I was younger, rather than just dumping chunks of money into my student loans. And I would have just like taken longer to pay those back. But at the end of the day, I think it just really is going to come down to like how it makes you feel. If they are hanging over your head and it's just soul crushing every time you look at your balance, pay them off. But if you're like, you know what, it's not so bad, like it's causing me more anxiety to not invest then invest. I think as long as they're low interest, you have a lot of flexibility. Okay. Now you know why I brought them both on because those are really fantastic answers. Um, I think that uh, there's a couple of things that I want to touch on. What Kyle said, this is not an easy question to answer. And there is no easy answer to this question. I think that's what a lot of people are looking for. Hey, how can I do both at the same time? And you can only spend a dollar once. And I'm sure people are going to email me, email me at, I don't really want to hear it at biggerpockets.com because... <laughs> You can only spend that dollar one time. You can either pay off your debt or you can invest it. And yes, you can use the investments to generate more cash flow to then pay off your debt. But episode 35 with Craig Curlop, he explained exactly how he did this. He made the minimum payments on his uh, invest, uh, on his student loan and then started to invest. He had a good income. I think it's really important to not gloss over that. He had an income that more than covered his basic living expenses and his debt service minimums and allowed him to save up for investment properties. He bought a house hack. He bought a duplex. He lived in one unit and rented out the other unit full-time. Uh, long term, he lived in the unit that he then would. I'm sorry, I am laughing because he lived in the top unit and rented out the bedroom on Airbnb and then lived behind a screen on a futon. He would sleep there. And yeah, it was like he did what he had to do to pay off his debt, but he wasn't actually paying off his debt. He was living in this place for free so that he could save more money to buy another rental property to do the same thing. And he bought, I think he had five properties. At one point, he bought a property that had five bedrooms and two bathrooms, which is kind of edging into weird property territory. Nobody else wanted this property, so he got it for a good price. He added another bed bathroom, uh, lived in one, rented out the other units, and lived for free again, cash flowed enormously, and then was able to take all of this cash flow and throw that at his debt. So that is a way to invest and pay off your debt kind of at the same time, but you are taking a step back from paying off your debt while you're saving up for these investment properties. And I think that Amanda touched on something really, really powerful. It depends on how that debt makes you feel. If you are so burdened by having debt that you can't possibly think about anything else, then pay off the debt. It doesn't matter what the interest rate is. But if you can live with debt, then you don't get that time back. I'm, I'm typing down all, I'm writing out all of these great quotes that Kyle and Amanda are saying, you don't get the investment time back. And the earlier you are in your investment life, the more important it is to put as much money into your investments as possible. Uh, I'm talking about the, the stock market and you know buying houses. And if you can max out your Roth IRA every single year when you're 20, how awesome is that? To just watch that grow and grow tax-free forever, hopefully forever. I hope they never come back and like, hey, we're going to stop this now. But you know, right now, that's tax-free growth. So why not put as much as you can into that? Um, which is another way to say that I don't really have anything to add. And we'll go on to Amanda. How do you transition from this save, 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 save to actually starting to spend? And I need this advice because I am stuck. 
Yeah, so I think that this kind of goes back to what I was saying before is it's how money makes you feel. And we know that money is like 90% psychological. So you can know all of the right things to do. You can create your little budget and know how much you're spending eating out and on rent and on your car insurance and all of these things and know how much you're investing. But if you're not able to like look at everything you're doing and know the why behind it, then it's going to be really hard to ever overspend and go to saving or save and then learn how to start spending. So I think it's really a matter of laying out all of your like spending where you are and then figuring out why do you want to save? Why do you want, like, what are your future goals? If your goal is to have a million dollars by 30, well, how are you tracking? Is your goal to live a fulfilled life and see the world? Well, if you're like saving and hoarding every penny, then you're not going to be able to do those things. Do you want to wait until you're 65 to do those things? So I think it's a matter of looking at how much you're saving and spending today and outlining what your goals are and see how you're tracking toward them. Because, you know, like I said, money is is feelings too. And knowing that you're allowed to spend some of your money, um, I think I think matters. So I think it's really just like laying out your goals and knowing the why behind it. Kyle, do you have anything you want to add to that? Oh, man, not really. I mean, I think that's that's really where you need to go to. It's such a psychological thing when you're when you're transitioning from the saving mentality to the spending mentality. And I'm not, there's, you know, there might be some assumptions that we're trying to make here with this question. I don't know if this is someone who's just like a phenomenal saver and they really have a hard time spending like Mindy, or if they're like getting to retirement and it's maybe kind of tight, but they they need to transition to spending. Like how do I transition to spending from saving, but not overdo it so that there could be two, maybe two things behind this question. Do you have a, a sense of where that's coming from Mindy or? I don't, I believe this was copied down uh, word for word in the, from the question. However, I will make my own assumptions because it's my show and I get to do that. So let's look at you and your recent unemployment, Kyle, you are, you were saving as a CFP planning for early retirement and now you don't have income, correct? Like traditional W-2 steady source of income. You've got rental properties, but are you living off the funds from your, uh, off the income from your rental properties or are you living off of your portfolio and other sources of income? Are you starting to spend that way? Yes. So yeah, from several sources, but yeah, you know, from rental properties, from savings, from investments, um, depending on, uh, kind of depending on the year, this year is a, a unique year because the firm was sold and we're having to do some tax things to try to, to not pay as much tax. But, you know, to answer this question from, from how I'm doing or, or, and how I would recommend doing it too, you know, in the last couple of years with my firm, I really transitioned to a lot. Um, I transitioned some clients away. So my workload was a lot less I wasn't planning for sure on selling my firm this year, but I was transitioning kind of in that direction. And I think anybody that wants to transition from the saving uh, mentality to the spending mentality, one of the best things you can do is make that transition a little bit more calm and not not have it be a a, a one time here. I, I'm retiring on this retiring on this date. Have the retirement party, and now. I need to talk to my financial advisor to figure out how much I have to take out every month to live on. That happens a lot and that's okay. But one of the best things you can do is maybe transition at your current job. If you're a valuable employee, a lot of employers would love to have you for a year or two in a part-time capacity where they don't have to pay you benefits, but you still get paid really well. And then now you're able to kind of watch your budget for a year or two as you're in part-time, maybe what you're making almost covers it and you can pull some out of your investments or your real estate properties. But this is, it's kind of like a trial run to give you a sense of, of how things look and it's not so scary. Um, Cause if you go from the first mentality to the second mentality, you have no experience in the second mentality. If you kind of transition slowly, you're now getting a little bit of experience and you can make some adjustments and say, Whoa, I, I think I need to work a couple more years, but I'll just keep doing it part time. It's pretty sustainable. Now I enjoy my job because I'm not burnt out. Or you can say, wow, I have plenty of funds. I don't need to work part time. I'm ready to check out and go. Um, so that would be that would be my recommendation. I didn't do it exactly that way myself. Although other than the fact that I transitioned to less work time, it would be you know what I did. Um, but yeah, 
I think that's gold. Make the transition more calm. You, I, th- I think so many people think in terms of black and white all the time. Either I work or I don't work, and th- those are the only options. And you know, part time is valid. My husband is now retired, but he stepped down to three days a week. And when he went in to ask his boss if he could do that, his boss was like, "Yeah, I don't care." Like he he had all of this nervousness moving into the the conversation, and the boss was like. Yeah, that's fine. You know, because he was a, val- a valued employee and they wanted to keep him, he had a lot of uh, legacy knowledge about the system that they were working on and they wanted to to keep him because they knew that the option was stay or leave completely, like go part-time or leave completely. Um, the the testing out your retirement, I as you were saying that, I'm like, oh, that was the millennial revolution on episode 55 and 55 and a half. They came on and shared that they did that exact same thing. They tested out their retirement while still earning this big salary. They tested out their theory. What about my stock portfolio? I'm just going to live off of the stock portfolio. Let's see what happens. And I'm going to live off of this much money and see what happens. And they were able to do it. And then they retired and the stock market crashed like the month after they retired. And they felt calm about that because they had lived off of it and their plan worked. They had seen, I want to say, it's been a long time since we had episode 55, but I want to say it was like they did this for two or three years before they retired and they really uh, tested the theory. So, okay, great. Moving on. What is the best course of action if I'm trying to retire from my nine to five in about five years, keeping in mind inflation, interest rates, and the current economic landscape? Do I focus primarily on adding to build my real estate portfolio, optimize current real estate with focus on investing more into index funds, or do I continue with a blend of both? Amanda, let's look at you. Yeah. So for me, I guess you know, not knowing where the cash flow is coming from. I'm assuming you've done a little bit of math to make sure that you can retire in five years. But my like, my first question would be like, what are you living off of? Are you living off of, you know, cash flowing rental properties? Are you planning to pull from the stock market? You know, I don't know what your financial situation looks like, but that is the first thing that I would assess is where is this money going to be coming from? Um, for me, I I invest in the stock market. I don't actually have any rental properties currently. It's definitely something I want to get involved with um, in the future. But for me, I'm like doubling down in the stock market right now, especially due to the fact that it's it's down right now. Um, now, I'm also a long-term investor. So for me, I'm looking at it as I'm getting everything on sale. This is fantastic. I'm planning to leave it alone for a really long time. And if that's you, then I would say like, I think this is a fantastic time uh, to invest. And I know that that is a a question I get a lot as well. People are really nervous. Um, They see like the doomsday. But I would just say, remember that the headlines are to get you to read the article. And if you're a long-term investor, the stock market has never not recovered. Now, as far as rental properties versus investing, again, I think look to see where is that money going to be coming from um, and how much could you, you know, afford of your current lifestyle today. Looking at that, that is where I would determine where I was going to put more of my dollars. Um, also I would ask, you know, are you planning to quit entirely or to the topic that we were just talking about? Are you planning to, you know, work some type of a side hustle or a part-time job or something to keep you a little bit busy? Or are you going to be a hundred percent no income coming in other than, you know, the real estate and the stock? So, um, that's kind of like my, you know, my thoughts on it, but I would say you like diversifying, you know, where you're investing is always a really good idea. But for me, you know, investing in the stock market is what, what I'm doing right now. Yeah. Oh man. I, so I, I want to hit on something Amanda said is really good. Like the the and I'm not talking about timing the market, but I am going to talk about timing the market. <laughs> like so, like the market is so down right now, and that I've had this conversation with clients. Like what you want in the past, what you want is for the market to just about crash three to five years before you retire, and the reason for that is that you are in the highest earning years of your life, usually five years before retirement. And your kids are out of the house. You a lot of times have a mortgage that's paid off or it's 500 bucks a month because you bought it in 1972 and refinanced it once somewhere along the way. Um, So that's you're in a place where you can just sock money away, most likely, depending on, you know, some of the other factors, man, it was talking about like what, you know, what your budget looks like. Are you spending a lot? But if you're ready to save now, I mean, the timing with your with retirement five years from now 
I mean, I would make sure you hit your 401k maximum for 2022 and then nail it again for every year until that five, five year time frame. Um, from the stock market standpoint, and just again on that note, because your, you know, your highest earning income years, if you can get that in there pre tax, you know, you're probably most likely, depending on what your other portfolio is, most likely when you quit your job, if it's just you or if it's just, if it's you and a spouse, as soon as you quit your job, you're going to be in a lot lower income tax bracket. So if you're putting in pre-tax now, you can pull that money out the day after or the year after you retire and pay way less tax on it if you want to. Um, a lot of times clients will be, I'm going to do a $50,000 renovation on my house this year before I retire next year. And I'm just like, put it into the 401k this year, save all the taxes and do it on January 1st next year. Pull it out when you're retired and you pay hardly any tax on that money. Um, instead of trying to do it all in the year when you're going to pay a whole bunch of tax on it and not be able to use as much of it. So you've got an opportunity here, at least, you know, from an index fund standpoint or from a stock market standpoint, um, uh, the real estate side of it, that really depends on your real estate experience. And it sounds like you have some because you're, you're putting it into the question here. Um, but maybe you don't, you know, maybe you haven't done any real estate. So I would say, that's that's an okay route to go. I'm more heavy real estate, although you know I've worked and I've worked with clients that are real estate clients for sure, but most clients are not. And it's not because uh, it's not because it's not a good investment. It requires more work, more education, more monitoring of even if you have property managers, you have to monitor the, you have to manage the manager. Um, so real estate would be a good diversifier too. The difference between real estate and the stock market right now is real estate has not dipped 40% or 30, 40% is extreme, 30% um, like the some of the a full market fund has, where that seems like it's maybe on sale for a five-year time frame, retirement time frame. Real estate, you have more leeway now than you did six months to a year ago, but there hasn't been a huge drop in prices and we don't know if there will be or if there won't be. I would venture to guess that there is not going to be a 30% drop in real estate prices. The The market and the demand for housing is just, it's just too high. And the echo boomers, the millennials are the biggest generation ever. And they're still here. Um, and they're going to want houses, even if interest rates are high. So I think you can do a mix of both, but I like what Amanda said that, you know, doubling down and towards the end of your career, if you can max out some of those tax advantaged accounts, um, especially if you're going to hit that cliff of where your income goes really low after retirement, if you can save a whole bunch on those tax accounts. Another thing here, if you live in a state like California, New York, Oregon, these high state income tax states, you have another incentive. I'm in Oregon and it's 9.9% for most people, uh, state income tax. That's the top bracket, but you hit the top bracket at less than a hundred thousand in household income. So you're paying a lot in state income tax. So that's even more benefit to save it. Um, and then move to Washington state the, the year after you retire and pull it out where there's no state income tax, but you know, that's another thing you could try to do, but that's, you know, there's, some scenarios in your personal situation that could be really, you, this is a good situation. A lot of times people five years out say, no, the market is crashing. I'm getting close to retirement. The timing's pretty good. This is, this is pretty good timing. I really don't want to disagree with either of you. I want to give this uh, person something else to think about. It is far more difficult to qualify for a mortgage when you don't have a job. So if you are thinking about adding more real estate to your portfolio, the time to do that is before you quit your job and before you give notice to your job because your lender will call up your job and say, hey, do they have a job? Yes, they do. And then right before closing, they're going to call up and ask again, do they still have a job? Oh, they just gave their notice. Your lender's going to be very angry with you and may not give you the loan. I don't know for sure because I'm not a lender, but don't give your notice until you're done buying houses um, with mortgages because it's so much easier too. Um, another thing that I am going to suggest is the xyplanningnetwork.com. This is a place to find a fee-only financial advisor uh, who can help you look at your specific situation and see if in your specific situation with your specific circumstances and your specific mix of investments, is it more advantageous for you to do index funds or 
add to your real estate portfolio. And the XY Planning Network does have CFPs who specialize in real estate portfolios, specialize in small business, specialize in self-employment. There's all sorts of things you can pick and choose from to help you find a CFP who is really going to fit what you're looking for. Um, It's a fantastic network started by Michael Kitsis, who is another walk on water finance guy. He actually walks on water. I do not. Michael Kitsis is <laughs> he's the man. And the XY Planning Network was a network that I was a part of when I, when I owned my firm. And it is a very reputable fee-only network. And you can, you can, and not to do too much of a plug, but you can find someone who will charge you hourly, not sell you stocks, not put you in a portfolio and manage it, um, it that you will pay for someone who's good. You will pay a high hourly rate, but it will be worth it because they will look at tax planning, insurance planning, real estate investments, your specific scenario, all the things that me and Amanda don't know about your question um, and can't give specific advice because there's too many variables. They will have seen it before and they will be able to pull out things that if you pay them 500 bucks or a thousand bucks for their time, they're going to five, five, probably find five to $10,000 worth of value in about 15 minutes to offer back to you. Yeah, that's that's really great advice. And you can hear even more tips from Kyle's first episode, 41, on how to find a good financial planner uh, with heavy emphasis on CFP, which is, or uh, fee-only CFP. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. What if I told you that I, Mindy Jensen, the queen of budgeting, the personal finance fanatic, sometimes forgot to cancel my subscriptions? I know, it's horrible. $10 here, $15 there. My useless subscription bills could have taken my whole family out to dinner multiple times. Rocket Money can make all that subscription sadness suddenly vanish. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. You can see all your subscriptions in one place and cancel money-sucking subscriptions with a tap. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. That's rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. Listen up, business owners. Here's some quick math. Fewer costs equals more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Don't let rising costs sink your business's growth. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash bpmoney. That's netsuite.com slash bpmoney. netsuite.com slash bpmoney. Saving for a down payment? A wedding? 
or just looking for extra money to invest? Monarch Money turns your budgeting woes into wins. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best budgeting app overall. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it easy to manage your money like a pro. Add a partner or family member to your account for no extra cost, so combined finances become a breeze. Customize your budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions, and more. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash pockets for your extended 30-day free trial. Okay, Kyle. What do you do when your FI journey hits a major roadblock and you've been on disability for a few years because of chronic issues and you are not allowed to contribute to a retirement account? Do you just max out your wife's Roth IRA or do you consider other options? Yeah, um, again, you know, this it's some of these questions are hard because to know the specific situation, like what it means that you can't max out a retirement account, but I would say you know, too often in the financial independence community, we assume that the only way to invest is with a Roth IRA or a 401k or a traditional IRA um, or Roth 401k, you know, these specific retirement tax advantaged accounts. You can put money into a, a non-qualified, it's called investment account. And it's it's not a retirement account. You have way more flexibility with it. And you can invest it in this, the same things that you would invest in IRA or a Roth IRA. You don't get some of the tax advantages, but you also get some other advantages because it allows you to potentially retire early because you can draw those funds without penalty. You pay some tax on gains and dividends during the time that you have the account. It's not all deferred, but there's it's definitely not, it's definitely a good option. And it's actually a, a really well thought out option to add to your overall financial tax portfolio, your tax planning portfolio. You don't want to just have a Roth IRA. In my opinion, you want to have Roth, you want to have pre-tax and you want to have non-taxable or the the non-qualified account um, because they can all serve different purposes. Your pre-tax account, say you accumulate too much during your working years and you end up realizing I'm not going to really use it and I don't want to necessarily give it to my kids or not as much to my kids. When you turn 70 and a half, you can give that money away tax-free to any non, not-for-profit, um, 100000 a year. So you just, I have, I had clients that that is their whole goal. And personally, my pre-tax accounts, that's going to be, those are our giving for fun when we are old accounts. Like that is, it's so the government doesn't get any of my tax money and my favorite charities get all of it. So there's, you have these different uses for each of these accounts. So if you're saving for retirement, you know, the Roth IRA, going back to your question, it's great to max that out for your wife. You know, if that's, if that's the only option you have from a Roth IRA standpoint, and again, I don't know much about your situation. The Roth IRA is not always the best choice. You know, are you young? Um, what's your income look like? If your income is high or your wife's income is high and you're getting close to retirement, you might not want to do the Roth IRA. Um, but I would just make sure, you know, to think outside the box. And the thing is too, with these non-qualified accounts, if you build up this account and it can be just you on a non-qualified account, or it can be you and your wife, it can be a joint account where retirement accounts can't be that. If at some point you qualify to be able to contribute to, uh, retirement account down the road, you can just move money from that into that Roth IRA. If you have some earned income that you're able to do a Roth IRA account, um, I'm trying to think through the scenario here, but I think, I think that would be, you know, try to think a little bit outside the box of maybe, and that's probably our fault in the financial independence community, focusing so much on like the Roth IRA and the traditional IRA and the tax optimization, you know, but just saving in a normal investment account is a, is really good. And there's a lot of flexibility, especially if you have it for a long time, because those funds become taxed at capital gains rates, which are very favorable compared to a lot of other things. You do your pre-tax IRA accounts that comes out as income, not capital gains, which is a higher rate later on. So those, those non-retirement, non-qualified accounts are pretty valuable. Um, yeah. I, Amanda, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. So a few things. First, I would say to give yourself grace. 
it sounds like you're going through a lot. And I know that we can be like really stuck on, you know, this like goal, this finish line that we've set for ourselves and now we're set back. So I would say it sounds like you're going through a lot. So give yourself grace um, first and foremost. Second, absolutely. You know, you and your wife, I'm assuming are a team, right? So max out her Roth IRA, but also assuming I'm assuming your wife is working since she's eligible for a Roth IRA. But um, remember that there's a spousal IRA that is available to you as well. So um, assuming that you guys are married filing jointly, you should be eligible to um, max that out as well. Um, and then t- to Kyle's point, you know, don't sleep on the brokerage account. Um, anybody can invest in that. So if you have extra money, you know, putting as much as you can into that, I think I, I look at it more as like a supercharged long-term savings account. If you end up needing it, it's there. And if you don't, great. Let's just it's just extra money. And then you know, if your health issues, you know, um, aren't so bad down the line, you know, you can you can make up for that time. But that's what I would say. Yeah, something that my husband and I talked about a couple of weeks ago is that we borrowed against a line of credit. We borrowed from our line of credit against our after-tax stock portfolio and bought a house with it. Um, And the reason we were able to do that is because we had contributed into this after-tax portfolio for so long. um, And we had uh, grown it to a sizable amount where it was uh, borrowable, borrow againstable. Uh, we're just making all sorts of new words today. Um, so even though you're not allowed to contribute to a formal retirement account, doesn't mean that you're not allowed to invest. Um, but I like what both of you had to say. And I had no idea that you could give away pre-tax account money. Um, that's great because I would much rather give it to a nonprofit than to the government who is absolutely for profit. Okay. No, no, uh, no, pol- no politics here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot of my, a lot of older clients, they, it gets real fun for them when they're 70 and a half, they have a lot of fun when they realize that they live so simply and they saved all this money and they love the idea that they can just huge benefit to their charities. And the whole time they never paid tax on it. It grew tax-free though for 30, 40 years. And now they can give it away tax-free. Uh, it's, it's a really cool thing in the tax code. $100,000 yeah. a year. Has to be from an IRA account. Can't be a 401k, but you can just roll your 401k into an IRA. It's a qualified charitable distribution. Um, and I believe it's still 100000 a year. Every once in a while, they'll index these things for inflation. But yeah, it's a really, it's a really neat thing. That's awesome. Okay. Wow. Thank you. Moving along, let's talk about diversification. What does a solid diversified portfolio look like for the remainder of the year versus a five-year outlook? Kyle, I'm going to go to you first and then we'll hear from Amanda. A solid diversified portfolio for the remainder of the year. Um, My answer to that would be it shouldn't change from what you already have unless you have a... um, major life event or something, something in your life has changed, you know, that this, a solid diversified portfolio for the, the remainder of the year, it depends on your long-term goals, what those are, the age that you are, when you want to retire, what, how much you want to give. There's too much packed into that to give like, what's an allocation. Ideally, you've already got an allocation. Say you're 30 years old and you set up some Roth IRA accounts, you've got an allocation in there that's like 90% stock, which would probably be a good allocation for long-term investing. Um, you go 100% stock, that would be fine too. You know, I would say 80% and above is probably where you want to be if you're that, you know, if you're young. Um, and, you know, of course, you got to be able to see it go up and down some, but if that's the case, it doesn't make the end of the year doesn't make any difference. And you know, you shouldn't change anything. On the other hand, if you're 65, and you're going to retire next year, your allocation should have already been adjusted five years ago, 10 years ago, getting you ready for retiring next year, or in this time frame, you might not have known exactly, your allocation should not have to change now through the end of the year. So it should stay the same, which probably more conservative or it might not be conservative. I I had clients and there are people that if you might be late in retirement, but you have plenty accumulated that you would rather just keep it all aggressive and you're fine with it going up and down because you know aggressive is is the best bet in the long term or has been historically um, to help hedge against inflation. This is a question that um, it's easier to address the five-year outlook as opposed to the end of the year because the the allocation going into the end of the year 
shouldn't change from the investment philosophy if you are more of a passive investor philosopher, philosophizer, however you want to say it. If you believe in active investing, stock picking, time in the market, all these qualitative, quantitative, fundamental analysis, some of this stuff that you try to pay money managers for, then there's a different answer. I don't have that answer for you because I don't think it works. So I think that would be that would be my easy uh, response on that one. Uh, the five year outlook, you're going to go back to the same thing. What are your goals? You know, your your goals. Are you going to retire in five years? Now is the time to really be thinking about what your allocation is. Um, you know, we had that question earlier about uh, with the market down. You know, what do I do if I'm going to retire in five years? You need to look at the income that you have for, you know, right when you retire, but you also got to think about 20 years into retirement. You got to make sure some of your investments are invested more aggressively to be able to fight inflation and be able to not, you don't want to be all, you know, bonds right now through five years from now, unless you have just a pile of money and you're okay with losing some of that money to inflation. Um, You know, I feel like, I'm getting pretty good at not giving this specific advice because I, it, it, <laughs> I'm i sorry for that if someone's looking for a specific answer, but it just really depends on what you've got going on and what your goals are. You know, five years from now, if again, if you go back to the 30-year-old, if you're looking at a five-year allocation from now, if you're going to retire at 35, then we got to talk. You know, like there's got to be some... You got to figure out exactly what that allocation needs to look like. Do you go, keep going aggressive or is your portfolio going to be what you live off for five years while your real estate goes for a little bit? Because you can do these things in stages. But if you're 30 and you're going to retire at 50, 60 or 70, you don't change anything either. You know, that's and again, like Amanda said earlier, this is when you, you're doubling down, you know, you're maxing those Roth IRAs and getting stuff 30% off. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a, Tough question, and I'm sorry that I don't give like a specific allocation of like 50-50, 60-40, 70-30. It just depends on uh, so many things like your risk tolerance, what you're okay with losing, what your goals are for the next few years, for the end of the year. Um, yeah, you know, Amanda, I feel like I'm fumbling through this. Amanda might just wrap this up with a nice bow or something. No, yeah. I mean, for me, my one-year outlook is the same as my five-year, which is the same as my 10-year which is to invest for the long term. When you're investing in something like the S&P 500, which is the top 500-ish companies in the United States or the entire stock market, you're already getting a diversified portfolio. You're getting hundreds or even thousands of companies all at once. So you don't need to go and cherry pick all of the perfect things. You're already getting a diverse portfolio. And so for me, I am not planning to pull my money out anytime soon. So I'm leaving it alone. I'm not, I'm actually... Like we're excited because the market's on sale right now, right? But it's not exciting probably to look at your portfolio, which might be causing a little bit of anxiety. So you could do what I do, which is just not look at it and just keep automating my investments. But I would just remember that, you know, you don't need to overthink it. You have a diversified portfolio if you're buying into just a handful of um, different index funds. And I would say, you know, most people like are good with three to five. You don't need to have like 30 different things. Um, if you want to be like really hands off, you can just buy a few things and then call it a day. Okay. I love that. You don't need to have 30 different things. You don't need to have a hundred different things. JL Collins would answer this question. A solid diversified portfolio is 100% VTSAX. Sorry, JL Collins. I'm putting words in your mouth, but not really because I read your book and that's what you would say. Um, I am personally 50-50 stocks and real estate. And of the stocks, I am 50-50 individual stocks, which is a sin against nature. I'm heavy on tech and 50% index funds. And I'm comfortable with my allocation. I'm comfortable with the tech stocks that we own because my husband was in tech. He reads every piece of literature about tech all the time. It, he talks to me about it all the time. He talks at me because I don't really listen all that much. Sorry, husband. Don't anybody tell him this. Um, he already knows. And But I'm comfortable with it because while I'm not the one doing the research, I know that he is doing the research. So if you are going to be buying individual stocks, you need to be doing research. You need to be able to talk about 
all aspects of that company and why you feel they should get your money over the entire stock portfolio or the entire stock market. Yeah. And yeah. And just like one more thing that I'll say is if there's any nervous investors, especially with, you know, the state of the economy now is to remember that if you're buying into something like the S&P 500, this, that has never not recovered um, ever in the history. That would have to mean that all 500-ish companies went under if your portfolio went to zero. And then we would be basically in like a zombie apocalypse. So I would just remember that like you don't have to overthink it. You don't have to do a ton of research if that is not something that you're interested in. And you can just have a diversified portfolio by buying into index funds like that. Allocation, one cow, two goats, seven chickens, (laughs) zombie apocalypse. There you go. The zombies will take all your cows and chickens. Oh, I forgot the shotgun. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and the shotgun. Yep. Okay. What is a good rule of thumb to answer the proverbial? I don't know that that's a proverb. When do I sell and pay off my debt for rental properties? It'll vary by person. So that's why I asked. Oh, yes. Oh, man. A rule of thumb. Uh, maybe just talk about a couple things to think about. I don't think there's a rule of thumb of when to pay off your rental properties. Uh, I think a big part of it is how much you enjoy working with your rental properties. If you pay off the debt of your rental properties, it reduces the stress, the management. It reduces a lot of the time that you have to deal with that property. So, you know, a lot of times people will pay them off. And Amanda talked about this earlier on about how you feel about the debt. You know, if if your property's cash flowing, you don't necessarily need to pay it off unless you need those funds. But if you are sick of like thinking, well, should I refinance this year? Should I not? Do I need to, if I sell this property, should I buy another one and put debt on it or not? You know, if you're done with that and you just want to pay them off and just have some cash coming in, that's great. You know, that that's, that's totally great. It's not the most optimized way to build wealth over time. But if your goal is not to continue to build wealth, doesn't matter. You know, like let's live the life that you want to live and pay off your properties if that's the, w- the route you want to go. Um, one thing to think about in this environment to add to that and kind of swing the other way a little bit is this kind of the concept of we're, we have these old interest rates that are only a year or six months old now that were so low. And a lot of investors have those interest rates on their properties. There's a huge case to make with inflation where it's at. And depending on what you think about what inflation is going to do, it is very unlikely that if you have an investment property at three, four or 5%, that you're, you're, you're borrowing money less than inflation. You know, the bank is losing four to 6% on your loan every year. And that's a huge case to make to not pay that loan off where at the same time, your income side of that equation your rents are going to slowly inflate over time. Your The value of the property will slowly inflate over time. Again, this is not a guaranteed in each year, but if we're looking historically, real estate's like a 4%, 4% real easy slide. You know, the last two to three years, take that out of the equation completely. Um, but if you look historically, that's that's what you're going to get. And if you can cover that debt with cash flow, you can keep that until you're 90. Like there's no reason that you need to pay that off. Um, Again, this is a personal preference. The other thing with that too, is depends on how big your portfolio is. There are tax advantages to, to, you know, getting another bigger property. If you have to sell a property for some reason and getting another bigger property down the road um, to do something like a cost segregation study, to be able to reduce your income for that year. There's some, some benefits to keeping debt on a property if it cash flows. We're not talking about doing something stupid. Um, but you know, this is this is very a very personal situation. I can say that what I have seen most with clients that when they get to 65 in that area, even I would say 50 to 60, they want to pay their properties off. They just that's that's the mindset. There's a lower risk factor to having um I'm gonna back that up. There's there's a lower of a certain risk to having less debt. and But on the flip side of it, some people would argue when you have less debt on a property, you are actually increasing some litigation risk. And this is a whole nother, uh, and this would be like a bigger pockets real estate podcast question. But when you have more equity in a property, you become more of a target for litigation. 
Uh, if an attorney looks up and finds out that your property is 80-20 leveraged, they're going to think, oh, I got to break into the LLC and I got to try to get what's left of this property. You know, there's a whole bunch of debt on it. The bank gets that first. But if you have a 100% owned property and someone breaks their ankle in front of it, there's a, there's a big pot of gold at the end of that rainbow that an attorney would love to go for. Um, and again, that's you can't really plan completely against that. But those are some of the variables that you have to think about with this this property and debt thing. It's, it's a real personal decision uh, that you can mitigate some of these different risk factors. But at the end of the day, you just have to do what you think is going to be the best fit. And, you know, if you, you know, if, if you're, if you're younger too, you know, just the goal of paying them off, it's, we have the benefit in the U S of this 30 year mortgage, which is a rare thing in the, in the world. And if you are able to really use that to leverage and cash flow a property and have the tenant pay that property off for you over an extended period of time, that's going to be the wealth builder. Um, but again, you know, maybe that's not your goal. Maybe your goal is to just sleep good at night and have a really low maintenance life that you don't have to worry about these properties hardly at all. All right. Amanda, are there any good money moves if you don't have cash, but have high income and low debt? How do you stop stressing about money and retirement? And how do you relieve stress that doesn't cost money? What are some ways to relieve stress that doesn't cost money and no exercise doesn't help? <laughs> so my first question, my first comment, I'm going to comment on this quickly, is my first comment is exercise does help. Get out there and run off your stress or bike off your stress or squat off your stress or push up off your stress. Um, cause at least you can say to yourself, God, I hate this. I'm not going to be stressed anymore. Cause if I am stressed then I have to keep working out. Uh, but I want to know why you have a high income and no cash. If you have low debt and no cash, where is your money going? Yeah, no, that was like my initial reaction as well is, do you mean you don't have cash as in like liquid cash in your checking account and you're investing it all, or you don't have cash because you're spending all of it? So, um, I don't really know what you mean by that, but... Um, I'm going to guess it's the second one. I'm going to guess that they are spending it all. Okay. So I think that there are a few things here. Um, first of all, I get that exercise isn't helping the anxiety for this specific situation, but like health is wealth, baby. So you definitely still got to exercise. Um, and it's probably relieving more stress than you even realize. Um, but as far as stressing about money and retirement, I get you here. Um for me, like I grew up really, really poor. So money has always been an enormous stressor in my life. Even when I got to a point where, you know, I reached um, coast five, which is, you know, you could coast into retirement. I wouldn't have to save any more money and I could still retire comfortably at, at traditional retirement age. But like the idea that all, like all of my money could go away one day, like still very much existed. So I would say that if you have, if the cash is the issue or the stress is the issue, I don't know. First of all, if the cash is the issue, but you have a high income, you need to see where that money is going. That is also going to relieve your stress. Literally laying everything out on paper, understanding what's coming in, what's going out, what are your account balances, what are you working with? Spend an hour and do a little bit of math and see like, okay, if you were to lose your job tomorrow, get divorced, lose your house, if everything, if all that happened overnight, what would happen? How long would you be able to sustain a life suitable for you based on the money that you have. And for me, like, I don't want to bring us back to zombies, but it's kind of like my zombie apocalypse plan, right? So like, if all of those things were to happen to me, I know exactly how much money based on my checking account I could survive, you know, maybe that's three months. And um, after that, then what would I do? Okay, well, I have a brokerage account that I could start pulling from. That would last me quite a while. Okay, and then after that, then what? Well, I know I can pull out my Roth IRA contributions with no penalty. So then I would do that. Okay, then what would I do? Well, I know that I could take a loan from my 401k if I needed to do that. Okay, then what would I do? You know, go through like your disaster recovery plan and see like how long could you go on if all of those terrible things that we like imagine in our heads were to happen? Probably a lot longer than you think. And I think that just laying it all on paper and understanding you know, understanding what that plan would look like can relieve a lot of stress. I know it does for me. Even though I feel like I kind of have my financial shiz together, there is still, there are still times where I get really concerned, like, do I have enough though? And I don't know that those feelings will ever go away just due to my history as a child. 
And I don't know what your history is, but I would, you know, remember that our money habits are established by age seven. So however you grew up around money is affecting you today. So, you know, sitting back, realizing like, why do you feel so much anxiety around money today? Where does that stem from? Coming up with your own disaster recovery plan, seeing how long you could survive, I think is going to relieve a lot of the anxiety. Anxiety tends to come from the unknown, and it's probably due to the fact that you haven't sat down and looked at it. So that's what I would say is come up with a plan, lay it all out, and um, you know, go from there. That is awesome. I love that disaster recovery thought process. That is so helpful to anyone who is really uh, deep in anxiety with money. Because if you can actually like that, I mean, you guys should just rewind this and listen to how she laid that out. You know, what what will my checking account get me? And then what will my brokerage account get me? And then what can I do with my Roth IRA? And then, you know, the loan from the 401k. I have some I have some silver under my bed. What could I sell that for? You know, like what whatever it is, I have some Bitcoin that's not worth anything. I could get a little bit for that. You know, each of these scenarios. And then if you look at that timetable and say, wow, I've got like a year, you know, or a year and a half. What could you do to put yourself in a better position in a year and a half if something bad happened? You know, that's a lot of time to plan and like even like get a new certification of some sort, uh, really look for a job hardcore. You know, if you really need to like get yourself on your up on your feet, knowing that you have a runway, you know, it's going to reset you to some extent. But a lot of times when something like that happens to somebody, you end up coming back real fast from where you were. But that thought process is is golden. Um, this question, the first thing I thought, you know, high income, no debt, like, what should I do? I'm like, save, <laughs> save money, you know, like, so I, I, my guess is they'd say low debt. So um, I'm assuming they're, they don't have trouble with credit card debt, which is great. Um, and it sounds like they're probably just spending what comes in, which is a lot of times in this scenario, I'll, I'll tell people to do the lazy budget. Set up another bank account, you know, online, like allybank.com, some some online account that you get two and a half percent or something. Set up an automatic lazy person budget where your check comes in the next day, a transfer goes out to that that account, and then you just spend through your checking account. Just that's fine. Just spend through there, pay your mortgage out of there, whatever is, but then that way you know that your good income is getting peeled off right away. It's just like your pay pay stub. You're just trying to do it before you can get your hands on it. Cause that's kind of what it sounds like. That's I'm trying to think of the scenario of how this could be happening. And that's the only scenario that I can think of. If you don't have, you've got high income, low debt, but no savings. The other thing too, is you could have just got the high income. You might've not, you might've just got an awesome job and you're just trying to ask, you know, what should we do? You know, how do I, how do I handle this? You know, don't have much debt. Maybe I didn't, have a high paying job before, which that's great. Good for you if that's the case. Um, but I would say in that case, the same thing, you know, set up that lazy person budget where something is transferred to a savings account. And then you can look at that and figure out what to do with that. If you want to put that in brokerage account, Roth IRA, but get it out of your eyesight for a little bit. Um, especially if you just got a big raise or something, cause then you can live on that old one to, you know, that old income that you're used to and just kind of sock that away. Um, but yeah, I love that thought process, Amanda. That was super, super good. And yeah, I'll just like add on to that. Automation is everything. Like I never would have saved a dollar or probably invested if it hadn't been automated. So if I have like any other ADHD friends out there or anybody who has like any type of mental health, you know, impulsive type of behavior and you just like black out and are like, where did all of my money go? That automation is going to help you a lot. It's kind of like what Kyle said, the lazy budget or like a hands-off way of budgeting. You only have to spend what's in that checking account. You move, you know, the rest of the money that you want to save into a completely different one that you don't even see. And then if all things crumble and you need it, it takes three days to get to you. So you got to like, you know, make a little bit of a plan for it, but it makes it less convenient to spend all of your money. So um, I just wanted to add that I thought that was a really awesome suggestion, Kyle. Oh, I love that. Make it less convenient, but still accessible to spend that money because then you've got three days to think about it. If it's an absolute necessity, you can throw it on a credit card so you can still pay for it. But like you're stranded in the middle of nowhere with a flat tire. Here you go. Now I can pay for it. But I'm not now scrambling to pay my bill. I can just pull from this that takes three days. I love that so much. That was awesome. 
Uh, okay, well, clearly you can see why I invited Kyle and Amanda on the show because they're awesome. And I am so excited that you guys were able to join me today. This wraps up our episode. Amanda, I really appreciate your time. Where can people find more about you? Yeah, thanks again for having me. This was fun. So She Wolf of Wall Street on Instagram and Wolf is W-O-L-F-E. It's my last name. She Wolf of Wall Street on Instagram or just SheWolfofWallStreet.com for you know any classes or anything else that I'm hosting. And Kyle, where can people find more about you? KyleMast.com. Uh, if I'm doing anything, it shows up there. That's awesome. From this episode of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, she is the She Wolf of Wall Street, Amanda Wolf. He is Kyle Mast, CFP extraordinaire. And I am Mindy Jensen saying hot diggity dog. My kids get so embarrassed when I say this. They say, nobody ever says that, mom. So I'm saying it publicly so everybody can hear me say hot diggity dog. And I hope I start a new trend. There you go. When your kids turn 15 and 12, you can embarrass them too, Kyle. Oh, man. I look forward to the opportunity. <laughs> It's so awesome. Okay, <laughs> thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month, four kitchens and bathrooms you can renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can afford? Which market and which deal is best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? These are all great questions, all to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devtha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. That's biggerpockets.com slash F-O-U-R. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.